Mustard's Made Perfect is known for its terrific network opportunities, excellent entertainment, and extracurricular activities. But at the heart of all of these activities are rich seminars with critical information that no one who is serious about Mustard's should miss out on. I'm Lia Levy, co-founder of Nanato Media and author of Beyond Se Habla Español, How Lawyers Win the Hispanic Market. And this is In Camera Podcast. And as our name suggests, we care about what goes on behind closed doors. Great, welcome back. Happy Good Friday. Yeah, it's Good Friday. That's right. That's right. And it's the first night of, of Passover, so everything's coming together. All the stars are aligned. That's right. Everything's going to be fantastic. That's great, Grace. But I'm very excited before we switch to holiday mode. We have part two of a conversation that we started last week, obviously with Michael as our guest and represented who attended Masters Made Perfect and came and shared about his uh, experience, how he went about the conference, which obviously was very interesting. But uh, now we're going to have part two to that conversation, looking more in detail into the actual updates that got shared during the conference. Right, Grace? That's right. So, yes. So let's just get started. And I know the first one that you want to talk about is baby formula. I sure do. So baby formula, for those of you who don't know, it's the Similac Infamil um, baby formula that is being given to preemies. Uh, there's a little bit more that came out uh, in terms of an update for this particular case type. And that is not just the NEC, but I'm going to spe specifically talk about the NEC stuff uh, because that is kind of what came out first. But um, NEC is that necrotizing enterocolitis. So for those of you that don't know, baby formula, um, again, specifically the Similac and Enfamil, is cow's milk-based formula. They do have what they call uh, something to give these babies instead of that, and that would be a human-based milk. Uh, I believe it's called Prolacta. Um, however, that is significantly more expensive than giving out Similac or Enfamil. So what came out of the updates in terms of the litigation updates is that they essentially came up with the reasoning behind what the liability is. And so, again, for those of you that don't know exactly what a mass tort is or how something becomes a mass tort, it has to do with liability, right? And liability could fall into different um, specific issues. And this product liability case, they're specifically saying that there was a failure to warn in other words, there was no mention of the possibility of a preemie baby who takes Enfamil or Similac, human, uh, uh, it's not human, it's Fortifier cow's milk, cow's milk based formula, that there's no mention of NEC on the label. It does say do not heat in the microwave, but again, no mention of the possibility of getting necrotizing intercolitis on the label. So because of that, it is considered what they call failure to warn the consumer. Right, Grace. And while we're on this topic, can I ask, 
in, if, you, if you can, if you think you can explain the difference between the NEC formula and the Similac formula cases that are going on, what's, what's the difference between one and the other? Because they're, they're treating them separately and just trying to get a better grasp as to how to understand the differentiators between one and the other. Definitely. So that's actually, um, I'm glad that you brought that up because there is a, a pretty big difference in terms of the demographics of who is being affected. Okay. So the NEC is specific to preemie babies. So babies that don't have essentially fully formed organs are being fed something that has cow's milk in it. And it's so that is what's causing the necrotizing intercolitis. Whereas the Similac lawsuit, again, like you said, it is being separately um, dealt with. That has to do with uh, apparently having some kind of a disease potentially in the formula. And it's not necessarily just preemie babies. They say that this is potentially all babies and it is it does have to do not with neck specifically but it has to do with the fact that these babies could still be hurt because again young children um, eating or drinking formula that they cannot digest so it's what they say is chronobacter infections from contaminated powdered milk so they're claiming that they're alleging that the milk fortifier Similac was contaminated. Um, I believe that there is even as far as botulism. So it, it's more about lots, specific lots of Similac and Enfamil that went out that were contaminated. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Great. And we've talked about that before here, right? The difference between that particular formula that's being fed to particularly preemies. And it's it's a little bit interesting, right? Because when you when you're doing research, and of course this is gonna depend and it may not be the same in all markets, but when when you go online and you start searching, you know, what comes up when you're searching for infant formula lawsuit and search terms that are very broad, not necessarily long long tail, most of what comes up are ads and information about the NEC, right, uh, formula. So we we are not seeing uh, necessarily them being separated much for the actual audience, but they're being pushed more or more information is being pushed about the NEC. What's really interesting, Grace, though, is that when you, when you search for, for instance, Infant, infant formula recall or such, actually uh, Similac is running their own campaign and they're very likely to show up on the top of the page with their ad on their uh, recall announcement and such. So interesting, interesting. I actually think it's a good move on their behalf to try to intercept people that are, you know, starting to research the topic uh, before they, they take the route of a lawsuit so or signing up for a lawsuit. So that's, yeah, that's there. Now, I have here also um, some price lists from lead vendors, right? And obviously, we're always handling here average pricings. We don't, you know, we're not saying that's exactly what you're going to get quoted for if you go and try to buy retainers. But I'm seeing here that uh, NEC baby formula uh, cases are ranging right now between $4,000 and $6,000. So that's uh, what the investment's looking like there. Yeah, it's not an easy case type because of the demographic, right? These preemie babies mm -hmm. are a lot of times because the individuals 
don't have the quality of care that they necessarily need. Mm-hmm. And so the babies mm-hmm. may be born premature. So at least on that side of it, it it's a little difficult to um, yeah. get those cases that actually have any seat. Whereas yeah. I think with the other one, because the other one, so that was very recent, the, the Similac situation. It was on February 17, 2022, the FDA itself issued a public announcement stating that they were conducting an investigation into bacteria contamination, specifically chronobacter contamination in the powder formula. And it came from specifically manufactured at the Abbott Laboratories plant in Sturgis, Michigan. So those, I think, if you can find those lots, which again, it's, it might be a little bit difficult, but if you can find lots and that specific demographic area, um, I think that you can potentially capture some organic leads if this is something that you already have out there for NEC. I would tack on the Similac uh, chronobacter contamination. I don't know what you yeah. think about that. Yeah, great. So it's really interesting. I'm just here, you know, um, going back at what, at what you say that it's a it's, it's a complex and it's a difficult case to sign, sort of saying. Looking here at the chart, it's basically the master that requires the highest amount of investment for per signed case, along with Paraquat. Those are the two that have really stood out. Uh, by um, how much the cost per case acquisition can actually go up for, and um, the only the only thing that would match that is uh, institutional sexual abuse, but that of course it's kind of like it, it's its own thing. All right, Grace. So speaking about Paraquad, is there is are, were there any updates uh, mentioned about Paraquad? I'd say there was, but I not a whole lot. You know, it's really just at this moment it's still moving along the same kind of mm-hmm. path. So uh, I'd rather talk about um, Zantac, actually, because it's so significant a change compared to the yeah. last few years. Um, Paraquat it was more of a conversation. They didn't really have a whole lot of slides that Mastorts made perfect on any updates because it was kind of minimal. So um, let's talk about Zantac. So again, let's talk about Zantac. Yeah. Uh, so again, Zantac. For those of you who may or may not remember, I mean, it's been going on for a while, so um, hopefully you do recall some of the stuff we talked about. But initially, when it first came out, there were probably 10, 15 cancers, right, that they were accepting in terms of the criteria for the injury <clears throat> that they believe uh, Zantac was causing, right, because of uh, high levels of NMDA. Mm-hmm. So as a reminder, they dropped anything that was generic, so they were only accepting brand and they were accepting brand, but of course, over the counter is a lot harder um, over time to prove sometimes unless you have some kind of an affidavit. So the prescription ones tend to be the better cases because you have proof of use, right? So with that in mind, be, besides the 10 cancers that originally were on there, they have now disclosed the experts in the multi-district litigation panel has disclosed five cancers that they're now accepting and only five. That is bladder cancer, esophageal, gastric, liver, and pancreatic. So it's super important to note that that basically cut the inventory or whatever cases you may have had in half or more depending on what the uh, injury makeup of the cases that you had in your docket. 
So it's super important to, if you haven't already, review all of your cases, the diagnosis that you currently have, and then move on to the ones that do have these five cancers that were disclosed. So um, I don't know what exactly you would like to discuss about those, but I think that is going to be, we've already done that. Um, we did this a, probably a couple months ago, as soon as we found out from the MDL before the update. And uh, we just had to go through and basically review all of our different um, cancers that we had and unfortunately yeah. eliminate the uh, those that didn't have these five. And this came out on yeah. January 8th or so. So the interesting thing is that the Zanta campaigns have been running already for years now. Um, and initially, uh, the, the demand and the interest was huge, right? I think also because of the widespread that um, the news had initially when this was all discovered first. And would see that the cost per lead acquisition or um, uh, case acquisition was relatively low for a mastered for Zantac for a long time. Now it's got it's, it's gone a little bit up, it's ranging between you know fifteen hundred and maybe two thousand dollars, maybe less. But obviously, as more information is known, as the qualifiers get more narrow, um, obviously the cost per acquisition is expected to continue to go up because, as you said, right, the pool before was very uh, extensive, very broad. Now, as things start to get or things need to start getting filtered out, you end up realizing that you know. Right now, you've had to eliminate, like just what you were saying, you've had to you had to eliminate some of the potential retainers you already had on file, and your your entire investment needs to get recalculated because now you have a new cost per acquisition. So yeah, but still popular, still master that it's uh, you know it's a good opportunity. It's not one that requires crazy amounts of investment, right? Like some of the earlier ones we've mentioned. So it's it's right there, Zantac, with those that are very you know reasonable and talking about reasonable priced. Uh, <laughs> And it's a, it's a little bit weird or ironic to talk about pricing when you're talking about masters, but you know we're looking at it from the marketing standpoint and how much does it cost to generate right now in the market a potential signed case of that. But CPAP, right? It's under a thousand dollars. It's just one of those masters that there have been so much interest in, and we know that the users of these devices are in the millions here in the United States, and so that's one of the reasons why it's been so popular. And um, you can sign cases here between seven hundred to nine hundred and fifty dollars, right? So under a thousand bucks, and that is as low as it's going right now in the master space. But what updates do we have about that? Because I know that was one of the things that got discussed quite a bit. Yeah, it did get discussed quite a bit, actually. And um, we happen to be uh, dealing with it very, very closely. Um, so I happen to know quite a bit about even um, one of our uh, firm partners uh, sat in on the CPAP update specifically because uh, she is um, attempting to get on the steering committee and or at least some of the science committees. And so she's been listening in on um, all of the science days and information about updates. And it was really interesting to hear because um, at Masterworks Made Perfect, they actually opened up the criteria rather than reducing it. So, you know, for those who know about, interesting. right, it, it, that yeah. doesn't usually happen, right? It's usually the other way around. However, I guess they're, they're believing, they're seeing that. And it's something that I saw actually too, in the cases that we've been getting in, the 
criteria was initially lung related, right? Where it was like pleural effusion or uh, lung cancer or something of that nature. Now, what we found is that there's quite a few people that are after the use, after the use of CPAP for at least a minimum of a year. Um, in most cases, they were using it for multiple years at a time. Um, they were also getting blood cancers. So we ran across um, hairy cell leukemia specifically. And upon looking at the, uh, most people don't know where cancer comes from, right? But they have an idea of specific cancers and kind of how they can form. And so when we looked at the uh, science behind that particular cancer and blood cancers in general, most of them are developed because of potential toxins. So due to that, which is exactly what this is, right? The CPAP foam is degrading and getting into their lungs. And so because of that, this is potentially another cancer that is being developed or an injury that's being developed because of the use of CPAP. So they opened it up, opened it up significantly to asthma. Hmm. I, I, I know those are going to be obviously lesser cases in terms of potentially compensation because asthma, you know, can be developed for other things, but they did right. open it up to asthma hard, as well. Hard to point down. Wow. All right. Well, that's interesting to hear. And yes, as you said, usually things narrow down, don't expand, but um, there, is, there is that as well. Now, Grace, there's a few more that I would like us to see if we can fit in into this episode. And one of them is Elmiron. Do we heard, have we heard any updates about it? So again, let, let's start with the Elmeron and what it is, right? It's a bladder medication primarily given to, to women um, over the age of 30 with bladder issues. So the injury that they're claiming or alleging to for this to be causing is macular degeneration. So it's basically eyesight issues, right? And they say that there's wavy lines, uh, they're losing their eyesight, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the litigation update that I see was, can you tell the difference between maculopathy that was caused because of Elmeron, which the, the actual name of the drug is uh, pentosin polysulfate. Um, so was it caused by PPS, pentosin polysulfate, or is it just something that happened to your eyes because of genetics or whatever else? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so... They are saying that they believe, based on an analysis of 1,100 plus patients, that they were able to see the difference between PPS maculopathy versus regular maculopathy. So because of that, they believe showing you three different types, right, whether it's a mild, moderate, or severe maculopathy, and looking at the imaging they're able to tell the difference between one and the other. So that's a pretty big deal, right? Because it could be the, the main issue was that it was age related degeneration. So the, the cases that were for people that were like 40 and older or people with already having uh, vision issues or hereditary vision issues uh, weren't as good cases, but because of this, um, 
and being able to look at the actual eyes and the difference between PPS maculopathy and regular degenerative maculopathy, which is called age-related macular degeneration, pattern dystrophy, or Stargardt's disease, they're able to see the difference. So that bodes well for these types of cases. They are currently, the bellwether discovery deadline is March 31st, 2022. The selection concludes on April 26, 2022. So the discovery deadline is passed. And then the plaintiff expert reports are due on May, in May. The first Bellwether trial is scheduled for January 2023. So there's quite a few updates on Elmeron. And um Right. Yeah, it's it looks like it's gonna move forward. And I honestly always felt that something of that kind of disease, right, that that a drug can cause, if it's that extreme they can usually see in the science of it, right? From an actual uh, vision doctor and they were able to prove it. So yeah, we, we talked about that when we first introduced this master and we've mentioned that, but also the complexity of going through the entire correlation journey. But I think as the awareness being there and obviously you always need to mention what, what medications you're taking when you're going to a doctor and such. And so I think that's probably has made this master maybe more, it has raised the levels of awareness and the ability to identify and pinpoint. I know this has been a very difficult master for social media networks to uh, find qualified leads, but through other mediums and in social media, those leads have gone for as much as $6,000. But uh, with a mix of uh, search network and other, one, and, and other type of efforts, you can uh, potentially find them um, at three thousand dollars, so, but there is a lot of demand. I mean, in Elmiron, there it's a lot of money has been spent already in trying to find this lead. So that, that's another thing to keep in mind that as the mat store matures, and particularly if here we're talking about a drug that's been recalled and it's no longer circulating, and there is no longer people taking it. Which I don't know. I'm not too sure. Is that the is if that the case with Elmiron Grace? Is it no longer um, up for sale? It is. It's still up for sale. It's just mm. not a lot of people want to yeah. get into it. Yeah, there's a little bit more work. It's the same like with Zantac, right? Uh, actually, a lot less because Zantac was recalled. The mm. it was recalled the, during that time for the ones that had elevated levels, and then they reintroduced. They reissue it with a modified formula. Exactly. Got it. Yeah. So that yeah. And we have the sunscreens and all of those things that are coming with the same. It's the recall batches and then they put them back in the market. So um, it's, you know, uh, you're, you're basically, the, what I'm trying to say here is, the, is that the pool of potential impacted uh, consumers narrows and it's smaller. And the ones that are slam dunks, they've already been signed. So that's, that's one thing to keep in mind. doesn't mean that the market completely dried out. Sometimes it takes years until it actually explodes and you can start signing up cases more uh, efficiently. But um, in in the case of Elmiron, it's still to be seen. All right, Grace, I said I wanted us to go through a few more. So let us make way to talk about one that Michael did brought up on our last conversation. He uh, briefly touched on it, but it's the exact tech, hip, knee, and ankle recall. So... That I understand is kind of like big, getting a lot of attention. What what should we know about this? So the Exactech uh, company 
is headquartered in Gainesville, Florida, and it was actually acquired by TPG Capital in 2017, which is a Texas company. It is the smallest of the major global knee medical device producers, and it currently occupies just over 1% to 4% of the knee market. So again, it's a knee replacement. And so on August 30th, 2021, there was a device recall on the knee device that that was that Exact Tech creates. The inserts were packaged in vacuum bags that apparently lacked an additional oxygen barrier layer. So the FDA said that they determined the cause to be a process control issue and there were 33,000 devices recalled. So with that in mind, there was an actual secondary recall on February 7th, 2022, the knee and ankle device recall. They expanded the recall from August to all inserts manufactured since 2004 with defective vacuum bags. That was 147,000 total that were recalled. Wow. Yeah. The situation is that over time, oxidation can severely degrade the mechanical properties of the device, right? Because it's when when it's metal and there's nothing separating it from, I guess, oxygen, the vacuum sealed bags don't have enough uh, separation and apparently it starts to degrade. So it's saying it's exact tech is now expanding the recall to include all knee and ankle atherplasty polyethylene inserts packaged in the non-conforming bags, regardless of the label or shelf life. Because during the period between August, 2021 and January, 2022, non-conforming knee and ankle devices have been shipped and implanted by surgeons. It's pretty severe, I'd say, right? Because this is a piece of very, <laughs> it's going in your body. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It's scary, yeah. scary when we hear yeah. these things, honestly. And and it and it's kind of like a, a doing the function of a joint, right? Yes, exactly. So yeah, I mean it. It, like, it is your knee. For instance, putting it putting it in comparison with something like an hernia mesh, right? Which is kind of like just a, a protecting layer inside your body, but it's not really doing anything else other than just kind of like keeping things where they should be. Whereas this actually is a more active, a more enabling sort of device. It is pretty, um, yeah. It's pretty significant. Pretty serious. Yeah. yeah, it is because this is a part of your body now that now has to be recalled. I mean, you have to go back under surgery. It's kind of crazy. Uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. The exact technique recalls are the OptiTrack that was introduced in 94, the OptiTrack Logic and Truliant are the brand names that they operate under. Then there's the Vantage Ankle Recall that was marketed since 2017. It's called the Vantage Total Ankle System that was recalled. That only includes 1,500 products. Um, And so again, what they're saying is that the causation that's related to the recall, uh, besides the fact that it was a defective bag, it severely, and they say severely degrades. It leads to accelerated accelerated wear debris, bone loss. So the bones around it that were good are potentially getting affected. Component fatigue, cracking or fracture. So the part could break and there's a need for corrective revision surgery, obviously, because it was a part that's in your body that now is recalled. So 
known risks to patients are what they're saying is the clinical issues of plastic wear include device loosening, fracture, mechanical failure, pain, bone loss, and recurrent swelling, right? Because it's constant impact in that area. Uh, and so the litigation update, um, there were there have been four OptiTrack knee cases filed since February of 2022 recall notice, two in um, SDNY was the Southern District of New York, uh, one in Maryland, and then another one in Alachua County, which is uh, here in, it's, it's in Gainesville in Florida, where I'm at, actually. <laughs> I'm in Florida, but not in Gainesville. And then there were uh, just a variety, eight, nine cases, hip cases, exact tech hip cases filed, uh, seven in Alachua, one in Arkansas, and one in New York. No ankle cases have been filed yet. Um, this is this is new. This is fresh, as, as new as it gets. And so we don't have real data right now to look about how much is the cost per acquisition, how much money is being put into these campaigns enough to really see. But what we can attest to is that law firms are already off to the races here on this one. Ads are already running everywhere. And while some, and it seems like, the most targeted case type is the one that relates to the knee, knee replacement device, right? Targeting the knee over other, uh, like the ankle or, in, or other uh, areas where this could have been implemented. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how this uh, evolves over the next coming months. How how are you experiencing this, Grace? Because I know you you also got on board of, on this mustard. So we literally just started less than two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. as soon as I have, I should have some information for our next episode though. Um, at the moment, we are just running it kind of <laughs> raw, right? To see what we get. And um, so we're just running a couple tests, both organically and using uh, PPC. So I, I yeah. will let you know exactly what we come up with in one week, hopefully. Yeah, excellent. Well, great. Our last master that we're going to be covering here in this part two of spring MTMP 2022 is going to be a uh, barred hernia mesh, right? Because there's been an update. And also, um, Grace, right now, when we, if, if we can also use this as an opportunity to explain when we're looking into the hernia mesh lawsuits, are we looking at different types of lawsuits or are they now all falling into one category? What's the breakdown there? Okay, so that's a very good question because, you know, hernia mesh is actually multiple manufacturers. And so the new litigation update, it's not really litigation, it's a new, uh, really, it's a new hernia mesh that they're uh, accepting as one of the hernia meshes that they alleged to have failed. And that is actually the uh, stratus biologic hernia mesh, not necessarily um, the barred ones. So this one is made of, um, I want to say it's pigskin. And what they're saying is that they're, they're, they're claiming that this is a new one that has developed because they're finding that they were believing it was a safer alternative initially, but it actually has started creating considerable issues in the body when installed. The idea was that biologic meshes were supposed to be a safer alternative to synthetic mesh because it was using uh, actual biological material, right? Whether it was um, 
sheepskin, pigs, uh, you know, intestines and things of that nature. Those are the biologics. Um, and so when they talk about biologic mesh, that's what they're saying. They thought that they being the companies that developed these mesh, uh, believed that there was a better alternative to synthetic, as I mentioned before, but apparently, and what they've seen is it's not, um, much of the hernia mesh litigation has avoided the biologics. And again, it's because they thought it was a better type, but it does not perform any better than synthetic. And even a simple suture repair, apparently, according to studies and trials. So apparently in the real world, it's it doesn't seem to matter. All mesh seems to be failing, and that is what they're alleging. So here is another one, and that is the Stratus Biologic Mesh. I know you wanted to talk about Bard, but uh, Bard is just uh, another one of the brands, and this one is yet another mesh that has failed. So yeah, more stuff people can look for in terms of people that are being hurt, unfortunately, and that is the Biologic Mesh. So about hernia mesh, I mean... <laughs> This master is one of those also that's already kind of like a legacy. It's been around for ages. Ever. And like the cost per acquisition, this one is as predictable as a, as a Swiss watch. What does tend to fluctuate is the cost per lead. And cost per leads may get a little bit more expensive, but your cost per acquisition is likely to, to still be consistent around $1,500. Um, sometimes a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more, but always ranging between $13 to $1,600, of course. And, you know, people may be thinking, well, that's not quite true because I've tried and I've run and I've done campaigns and so forth and so on. Um, these are all kind of data points taken out of campaigns that are run at volume with big budgets, right? And it's important to state that out because it's different level of performance. It's different level of repetition and reach that you have when you're running campaigns at that level. And that will definitely impact uh, your overall cost per lead and cost per acquisition. So keep that in mind, because if you are in a particular state or a particular city and you're only running it locally, you may see different results. Now we're talking about bigger campaigns being run at a national level with extensive budgets. So the, the the thing here, Grace, is that there's more awareness, and 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 that's the thing. Like people are people are getting better at pre-qualifying themselves. Those who've been curious and they know long and they already know that that doesn't apply for them, they're stop clicking on these things, right? Also, they've they've already been told no. So I mean, you're talking here about a campaign that's been seen already by millions and millions and millions of people. So that that also sometimes helps clean the uh, space and get. Um, higher cost per leads, but uh, oftentimes better quality. It's still the conversion rate. I mean, it's very impressive. The conversion rate is low, but there's just kind of like abundance of leads on this. So one one thing to, to keep in mind. And Grace, thank you so much for all of these updates, for all of these insights into what's happening. I mean, it's, it's an ever-changing space and, you know, what, what we know this week may completely change or get updated or made a, a, a U-turn to a different direction that uh, we may not be anticipating or predicting. So that's why it's important, right, to every once in a while go back and talk and see what, what are these uh, masters doing uh, and where they're going, even though I don't understand half of the things that you say. I still... <laughs> 
<laughs> I still find it very, very interesting, uh, particularly handling and being involved in marketing for uh, some of them. So Grace, let's just do some takeaways here, right? This is some takeaways. Um, so I think my first takeaway would be to, if you're involved in any mass towards period, you need to try and attend as many sessions as you can. Uh, because just like you said, Leo, two seconds ago, this stuff is ever changing and evolving. And to best serve your clients, you need to be ever changing and evolving the same way. And so the only way you can do that mm -hmm. is to attend these types of sessions, to listen in on podcasts like this, to reach out to referral partners, to, you know, to just be involved in the updates. And even if you just sign up for Google alerts, FDA alerts, something, you know, you, you, you have to be as up to date as possible to best serve your client. That's my takeaway. Number one. Great. And very good one, Grace. I'm going to go with qualifiers, know your qualifiers, right? And anytime, anytime somebody reaches out and say, uh, we're interested in a master campaign. The first thing we ask is we need to know exactly what are the qualifiers and everything you know about it. Why? Because the qualifiers are going to be your segmentation. They're going to tell you exactly who and where you need to target. Uh, and you're also going to be able to identify there where it's the best place to find these people. Secondly, it will dictate how you write your copy, how the messaging needs to be put together. What are the most important factors that need to stand out when you're creating the campaign? So all of this information is extremely critical. And going back to what you're saying, Grace, they can change, they can evolve. And so um, there needs to be really good communication between marketing and the legal side of things when it comes down to mass storage, because as things are changing and updating, uh, you may have to completely uh, reposition or redirect your campaign as more information is being uncovered or the case or, or the case is moving into another state or cases start moving into another stage. Just like you've mentioned here in this conversation, Grace, just to use back as a, an example, right? When you're saying CPAP, it's expanding. Right now, with now asthma can be a condition that can be attributed to potential use of C, uh, of CPAP devices. So this is important, right? This is important because now your marketing needs to also be targeting a completely different type of persona that maybe you were strategically avoiding or keeping out. So that's why that is so important, and I think it's it's never going to be a set it and forget it with any type of marketing campaign, but particularly in the mastered space, it's. Definitely no. And, and that is also why doing this in a partnership, doing this with organizations that are really heavily involved in it makes a lot of sense, like ex-social media and such, because they, as much as the lawyers keep their ears to the ground when it comes down to masters, they're doing exactly the same because they need to make sure that their campaigns are accurate and up-to-date and they're actually going to generate leads that can be converted, some of them. It's usually low conversion rates when it comes down to masters, but you still need to be able to find, to fish the ones that you're gonna be able to, to turn into cases. So know your qualifiers. We have one more, Grace. So it's actually kind of in line with what you just said, know your qualifiers. Cross review your current cases. I call it oh, yeah. data mining. I call it, call it whatever you want, right? But your net cases mm -hmm. could be cases that you know, the ones that didn't qualify for NEC could potentially fall under the Similac uh, chronobacteria recall. So 
Remember that. Don't forget that. Yeah. Cross train your people to know the different case types that you have and to be able to bring something up that potentially could help the client, even if you can't help them with that particular thing that they came to you with. So yeah, just make sure you're always cross reviewing, cross checking, um, and constantly data mining for the best way to serve your client. Yeah. Great point. Great, great point. And very, very, very applicable example. Grace, it's good Friday. We should jump out of this conversation and just go and enjoy the festive weekend. Have a great, I, this is so not the right message for someone who's listening to this on a morning, more on a Monday morning on their way to work. Right. But you know what? We hope you had a great weekend and ready to start another great week. And Grace, we'll be back with a great conversation next week, next week. just like we always do. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you like our show, make sure you subscribe, tell your co-workers, leave us a review, and send us your questions at ask at incamerapodcast.com. We'll see you next week.